Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome back to the show. This is part two of our coverage of Mary McLeod Bethune. Let's just take a little recap of what we covered in part one. We took Mary Jane McLeod from the cotton fields of South Carolina to school in North Carolina and then on to college in Chicago in her quest to become a missionary in Africa. We were crushed with her when her dream was denied because of the color of her skin, and we cheered Mrs. Bethune on as she worked towards her new dream, a school for African-American girls in Daytona, Florida. Which she built from a $1.50, a dream, the power of friendship, and sheer grit. (laughs) And with that dream realized, she just dreamed bigger. When we left her, she had just built a hospital on the grounds of her school. A hospital that both served and employed both black and white doctors and nurses in the segregated South. And she had stepped onto an expanded dream when she met some women at the National Association of Colored Women who are encouraging her work. And she is far from done. By 1911, the first class was ready to graduate from eighth grade. She had informally expanded the school, but she felt that it was time to make it real. So she went to her board of trustees and asked if she could add a high school program that was accredited. And they denied her. But she's not somebody that's going to give up very easily. And she basically said, fine, if you're going to tie my hands, I'll just start over again. And James Gamble, we talked about him in the last episode, knew that wasn't a bluff. And eventually her request was approved. And not only did she start a high school program, but she began an in-home education program for community members that were in need of some type of education or advice. It's 1914 and Europe is on the brink of war and the Red Cross is gearing up for action all across the world. But its activities do not will not, aren't planning to seek the investment of Americans of color in any way. Now, how about this for friend of a friend influence? A senator who was on Mrs. Bethune's school's board of trustees and who had been taken by her non-segregationist um, stance. I mean, he's from Connecticut, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a given, but it's not as big of a surprise as if he'd been a senator from the South. Anyway, he recommended that she go to Washington, D.C. and make the case for non-segregation in the Red Cross. Me go to Washington, D.C.? Yes, you. Also, the meeting's in two days. So please hurry. Also, another one of your supporters is close personal friends of the chairman of the American Red Cross. So we'll get him to send you an introduction. Oh, also, the chairman of the Red Cross is the vice president of the United States. So we'll see you in Washington in two days. Bye. (laughs) So Mrs. Bethune went to her closet. Now, this is a woman who's dressed nice her entire career. But she's looking in there and she says, what am I going to wear to speak in Washington? This is a really big deal. So just like when the whole village gave its best things and wishes to send her to school all those years ago, supporters got together a splendid outfit for Mrs. Bethune. Many hats were combined to make one nice hat. Somebody's best pair of Sunday gloves was lent for the occasion. Lots of sewing had been done. (laughs) 
<laughs> lots of running to the train station to get her ticket for her so she can concentrate on other things, that kind of thing. So her whole world came together to, again, send her out into the world to be the light for others to follow. Once she got to Washington, the man who had invited her informed her that the reason he had asked her is because she will have influence over the vice president. I, 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 if her mother could see her now. Wow. That's <laughs> no kidding. So the speech she gave was so impassioned and so relatable that she was sent by the Red Cross on a three-state recruiting tour of Black communities in the hopes of integrating the organization. When her tour ended, her last speech was at her own school, and not only did that vice president of the United States, Thomas Marshall, but also the governor of Florida attended her speech, which means the press followed him. Not only was she bringing awareness to integrating the Red Cross, but she was also bringing awareness to the Daytona Institute. She did what she set out to do. That's true. They wanted to increase recruitment, and that's what they got. So along with the rest of the citizens of the United States, African-American citizens began raising chickens, sowing for the soldiers, putting up fruit and vegetables, in fact, gardening in the first place just so they could do that, knitting socks, rolling bandages. There was a sticking point, however, with Mrs. Bethune's drive to get nurses placed with the Red Cross. It wasn't until years later, um, near the end of the war, there was a woman named Frances Reed Elliott Davis, who was the first African-American nurse accepted into the American Red Cross nursing service. And she's not one of Mary Bethune's students, by the way. <laughs> How far did you search to make not make? Oh uh, well, she went to she went to a school um, actually in Washington D.C. Ah. So she was geographically distant. Oh, but I'm sure her heart was in the same place. Oh no, they definitely had the same goal. Now, however, it wasn't all a bed of roses though for Mrs. Davis. Unlike her white companions, she was unable by virtue of her being in the Red Cross, to automatically go into the Army Nurse Corps and go overseas. I would encourage you to learn more about Frances Reed Elliott Davis, who, like Mrs. Bethune, went on to contribute so heavily in the realms of nurse training, health clinics, and child care facilities. So she was also a bringer of light. She didn't happen to win her particular struggle to get actually into the Army as in the Nurse Corps, but she did so many other things and opened the door for everyone behind her. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to some more information about her. Right. There's so many people that we run across like that. We're like, oh, this person's so cool. I wish I could go down that path in front of this microphone. <laughs> you know, you just can't do yeah. it. The first seniors from Mrs. Bethune's high school graduated in 1915 in a lovely full circle. There were five young female graduates, not unfortunately the same exact five oh. who had started with her all those years ago, although two of the five were the same. Hooray! Yeah. Unfortunately, her favorite and steadfast backer, Mr. Sewing Machine White, died before he could see this milestone. I'm very sorry about that. However, a bequest in his will made it possible for Mrs. Bethune to have built a new school building, which was christened White Hall and, by the way, is still there and in operation as of this recording in 2023. Mrs. Bethune is going to continue to speak for years 
for the Red Cross and, of course, for education. And I had come across this quote someone said about the way she spoke, and it just made me realize how powerful of a speaker she was and how relatable, you know, because we can't always see that from here. This is what this person said. There was a magnificent dignity about her person and carriage that awed her audiences, whether she talked to one person or many. Through the intonations of her speech, she could build a simple statement into a dramatic charge that brought forth the minds of her listeners, all the calls ever uttered in the tradition of leadership from Moses to modern times. Mm. I know. Isn't that impressive? I'm like, oh, dang, I wish I could have heard that. During the war, Mrs. Bethune was um, one of the founders of the Mutual Protection League for Working Girls. And they, of course, focused on African-American working girls. But throughout society, so many girls and young women had emerged from the schoolrooms and the nurseries and the kitchens and their marriages to come do jobs that were traditionally regarded as men's jobs. And along with their new presence in the public came a lot of, I don't even want to call it predatory behavior, but like sudden exposure to the male gaze that hadn't existed before and problems that they had never come across before with regard to, you know, collecting paychecks, making sure your hours are counted correctly and that kind of thing. So that was founded in part by Mrs. Bethune. And that same year, she also helped to create the Circle of Relief for Returning Negro Soldiers finding them jobs, reintegration into society, and medical care. Tens of thousands, by the way, of soldiers who had returned from World War I, soldiers of color, and come back to the South after having received more equitable treatment in Europe, bailed on the South entirely and moved north to the cities of Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, etc. It's called the Great Migration. Returning soldiers were often faced with extra prejudice when they got home. I just want to give you a quote from a senator from Mississippi, and he, quote, warned the white people of Mississippi about this. This was his, quote, warning. I can't even. uh. If a Negro soldier is allowed to see himself as an American hero, it is only a short step to his conclusion that his political rights must be respected. Negro soldiers returning home to the South with expectations of equality that will lead to disaster. I mean, that's the prevailing wisdom. Mm -hmm. So that's not good. And, you know, that depends on what you mean by disaster, Senator. Well, I think it'll lead to progress, I say. Now, the 15th Amendment, which had been passed in 1870, the right of citizens of the United States shall not be denied on account of race color, or previous condition of servitude had technically given all adult men the right to vote. But almost immediately, measures were quickly put into place to limit African-American participation in elections. We talked about a lot of this during the Fannie Lou Hamer episode about the ridiculous literacy tests where white men were given basically Dick and Jane books and black men had to explain the intricacies of technical manuals. Another technique was the poll tax, P-O-L-L tax, which was low enough that the implementors could say to themselves, oh, it's just so small, but high enough to act as a genuine deterrent. Now, northern states had poll tax, too, historically, because they wanted to suppress the vote of the poor men. But there was special targeting in the South to the African-American population. 
Mrs. Bethune ran night literacy classes specifically to help men pass the literacy tests. She ran fundraisers and kept accounts to help people pay their poll taxes and also organized knowledge campaigns to circumvent some of the chicanery. There's the word of the day, chicanery. That's a great one. You had to have already paid your poll tax in another office on a previous day before you got in line. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So what you needed to present on voting day was your receipt. Right. Isn't that sly? Very sly. And remember, this is the South, so lines to vote were segregated. And I can assure you that one line was moving faster than the other, and it wasn't Mrs. Bethune's community. The KKK was an expert in intimidation and threats, including publishing the names of registered African-American men in the newspaper and then publicly encouraging their bosses to fire them, which is the dirtiest thing. Well, their panic increased. The bad man's panic increased as the 19th Amendment began to be ratified in state after state. Now, what is that amendment? Although we've talked about it before, I'll say it again. The right of a citizen of the United States to vote shall not be abridged or denied by virtue of sex. In 1919, Tennessee became the deciding state, and the 19th Amendment became the law of the land in 1920. And who do we have to thank for that? Mrs. Feb Byrne. She wrote a letter to her son who was in the legislature in Tennessee telling him he needed to vote for this. Even though he had been standing on the other side, because of this impassioned letter his mother wrote to him, he voted for ratification, and that's what tipped the scales. Sometimes you just don't know what a small action of yours is going to do, because you know what? It could have been just as easy for her not to write the letter and just fume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And things moved forward. Though, I would like to tell you, Florida as a state, did not ratify the 19th Amendment until, and here's where I would like you to guess, what year did Florida ratify the 19th Amendment? Uh, I don't know. 1923? 1969. Wait, what? <laughs> you were alive. Oh my gosh. Wow. 1969. Yeah. I mean, the women in Florida were obviously voting. It was a symbolic abstain from the vote mm -hmm. type of thing that they tried to pull off in, in Florida. Like, yeah. Wow. It was the Daytona mayoral election that was the key to getting equal African-American education in the city. One candidate was planning to pull it all down, basically, and proud of it. And one candidate was for progress and equality. Mrs. Bethune expanded her previous efforts to the other half of the population, organized more literacy help and education, and drew the attention of the KKK, who came the night before the election to express their views. These people like to just march silently with their torches in front of places, threatening people. And in this particular instance, they were able to turn off the electricity at the school but Mrs. Bethune had other plans. She had a generator. So what she did was turned on all the lights and started choir practice while she admonished the Klansmen from her porch. If you burn my buildings, I'll rebuild again and again. All the while, I'll be doing something else. I'll be troubling heaven about your dark and evil deeds 
and I'll pray so hard that neither you nor any of your offspring will have any peace day or night. She's saying this to the Klansmen walking in front of the school, in front of her house. And that also sounds like... That sounds like a like a curse. It does. That's exactly <laughs> I mean, what, it's ex- that is a Christian. That's as cursy as the Christians get, right there. Yeah, I'm going to tell God that what you've done. He can see it, but I'm going to keep pushing him. And I'm very persuasive, as you well know. Not me, but <laughs> Mrs. Bethune was. Oh, I see. Well, they did eventually disperse with no violence. You know, what was it? They had made their point clear. However, the next day dawned and the, quote, colored line was much longer than the white line. The African-Americans were kept waiting outside until all of the white people had voted. But eventually they were able to cast their ballots and their candidate won the election. Mrs. Bethune had won the day, though I would like to have you listen to our Fannie Lou Hamer episode for more details on the barriers and violence that persisted for decades after this moment, you know, to prevent African-Americans from participating in democracy. So Mrs. Bethune had won her particular battle, but not, of course, not yet the war. Starting at about this time, 1920, Mrs. Bethune joined and led so many organizations. It's almost impossible for us to keep up. Here's a couple of the biggies. The National Urban League, and the NAACP. This is the level of organization that she's joining, but there's also smaller ones that were a little closer to home. Mrs. Bethune was dismayed at the sort of fractured efforts of all of the, quote, colored women's groups in the South. Surely they'd have a bigger voice, more power if they all pulled in the same direction. Let's make one big committee instead of 20 small committees. Well, she gathered the state clubs from North and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Virginia, Tennessee, and, of course, Florida under one umbrella organization called the Southeastern Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. Their goal was to work on school integration and healthcare facility improvements, which included the likes of our old friend from the Haynes Institute, Mrs. Lucy Laney, and also Mrs. Booker T. Washington, whose first name was Margaret, but as you know, only her closest friends would have ever called her Margaret, so we will not. Her name in the public was Mrs. Washington, so that's what we should call her. I'm very taken with their position paper, which is called Southern Women and Race Cooperation. There was a mostly white conference of church groups, both male and female groups, that had taken place in Memphis. Coincidentally, there was a meeting of the National Association of Colored Women taking place at the same city. The white organization reached out to the, quote, colored organization if some of the key members could stay behind to work on a racial cooperation platform. So the white organization asked these key members of the African-American community to sort of outline what the white people of America could do to better their situation. And they were being earnest, even though I think it sounds a little patronizing and probably the African-American ladies did too. But nevertheless, they asked. They asked for an outline. And so what they did is they came back with an outline. And it says, it's an exhortation to the white women of the South to understand the difficulties African-American women specifically faced and to please white women use your power 
to help all women in the country. And I quote, we are stating frankly and soberly what in our judgment you white women may do to correct the ills from which our race has so long suffered and of which we as a race are perhaps more conscious now than ever. The section headings were conditions in domestic service, child welfare. That's actually under that child welfare section is the first sort of addressing of the problems of working women. The fact that the women who are working in your house have families at home who have to be neglected because of our work for you. That's what that came under child welfare. Conditions of travel, education, lynching, the public press, and suffrage. It's an amazing document. And then there's a reply from the Committee of White Southern Women's Clubs who had asked for this outline, who also attended this conference in which all of this outline was hammered out at Mrs. Bethune's request, including the wife of the governor of North Carolina. This is not small potatoes. We are not, as they say, messing around. You know, they take the invitation, they run with it, they hammer out a resolution and bring it back. And like, the ball is in your court. Great. So to sort of summarize, it was a very positive response from the White Committee. And I'll just read a little bit of the sort of generalized response. And I, again, won't go into the point by point. Um, They actually did address, you know, Section 1A, Section 1B and everything. Here is the, the final conclusion. An interracial committee in every Christian organization of women will be a potent factor in the community in bringing about better understandings, relations, and conditions. To seek a knowledge of the Negro leaders among the women of our communities so that a sympathetic basis of cooperation may be established. Two, to direct a study of Negro community life in matters of housing, sanitation, neighborhood conditions, and the needs of Negro women and children. Three, to adopt methods of cooperation with other agencies and with colored women so a constructive program of community betterment may be accomplished for all. Four, this one's cringy. Okay. (laughs) To lead the society in a study of Negro achievement in literature, poetry, music, art, and other lines of endeavor that there may be a sympathetic appreciation of the Negro's contribution to American life. Uh. Okay. So yes, super cringy. Yeah. But part of the outline that Mrs. Bethune had given in the committee was that the press often focused on like, you know, there's a caricature. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? There's a caricature. And she said, do whatever you can to combat that caricature because you know it's not true. You know it's not true in your own life. You know it's not true in the wider world. Why are we letting it go forward, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that was a response to that exhortation right um it comes across to us in the modern world as being like oh yeah i think it was well meant anyway no i do um, too and then um the the last point was just that they have a duty these white women to represent their society in this endeavor in any local cooperative work they may undertake outside of their specific committee that has agreed upon this so they have to bring that torch into the other committees And little by little, pick away at the resistance, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think all in all, except for the cringy parts to modern ears, it was a positive outcome. If your outcome was raising awareness and and getting them to think about what was going on. Mrs. Bethune had this vision of desegregation, especially in the Jim Crow South. And she wanted, quote, not separate as the fingers of a hand, but with the clasped hand of friendship. 
I'm sorry. This whole idea of like dueling committees is a nightmare. I have talked about this before about how I'm still remembered for how I left the PTO. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you left all those years ago. So dramatically. Uh, I never even like let my shadow cross the door because I'd heard so many things that just turned me off. But you at least went. So my hat's off to you. In school news. Mrs. Bethune and her school were left a large bequest. Out of nowhere, they had had a customer named Mrs. Flora Curtis, who, anytime she came to buy, as they called it, garden stuff, you know, carrots or or whatnot, lettuces, she would quibble about the quality and size, and then she would go in and pay her dime in the office, you know, for all the garden stuff that she had bought. Regular customer, Always wanted the school's newspaper sent to her back at her home. She only came for the winter. And then out of nowhere came the news that Ms. Curtis had died and had left them $80,000 in her will. That's a lot of carrots and lettuce. Yes. And with that bequest, Mrs. Bethune was able to begin and then, of course, complete construction on Curtis Hall, which is... Say it with me, still there, still active on campus. So the year is 1923, and Ms. Bethune is looking around. She's got 300 students. She's got 25 staff. There's now eight buildings. This is a real establishment with acreage and tradition and and power. But what she saw ahead of her was basically constant vigilance, this life of last minuting, of acting just ahead of the deadline financially. And And she didn't want to go the public route because once you hand the state the reins of your school, who knows what's going to happen? They're they're likely going to interfere with your philosophies and they might introduce segregationist thoughts and powers into your carefully nurtured little baby. What to do? What to do? Well, the Catholic diocese reached out and said, we'll be glad to take over financially. But our stipulation is this becomes a Catholic institution with the Catholic religion taught in your school. And she really wanted to keep it non-denominational. Christian, but non-denominational. Well, the Board of Negro Education, which was a division of the Methodist Episcopal Church, offered Mrs. Bethune a solution. They would act as sponsor. They would take the financial and legal responsibility for the school. But... They would keep Mrs. Bethune in charge of content and um, direction of the school. If, here is the bargain, would you consent to combine with a boys' school, the Cookman Institute in Jacksonville? It had been founded in 1872. It was the very first, quote, Negro school in Florida. It was currently suffering hard times, but it was very, very important to preserve the legacy of that school and its work and their alumni, you know just the spirit of that school. And really, this was the way to save both of them. It's like a win-win. Right. This new school on the campus of Mrs. Bethune's school was called the Daytona-Cookman Collegiate Institute. It was later changed to Bethune-Cookman College. And say it with all of us, it's still up and running to this day. The school motto was enter to learn, depart to serve. She had it outside and the inside of some doors, which I thought was really clever. So people looked at it all the time. During the handover ceremony, the day of the signing of the agreement, she gave a speech. And here is one quote from the speech. 
It is a big thing to yield all. My feet are sore now. My limbs are tired. My mind weary. I've gone over hills and valleys everywhere, begging for nickels and dimes that have paid for this soil, for these buildings, for this equipment that you find here. I want to bring it all this morning and cheerfully place it on the altar. I hold back nothing. I yield it, Mr. Chairman, with God's blessing upon this work, with his sure protection around all we have done. Take it, develop it, and use it. Once the two schools were merged, she found herself with boys' teams. Like, there was a boys' football team. So she visited them to watch them play, and she went to the team afterward, and she said, You're ferocious. I dub you the Wildcats. And to this day, they are still the Wildcats. Mrs. Bethune had been freed from the grueling responsibilities of day-to-day fundraising for her school after the merger, although she remained the president of the school, the director of its adventures. But in typical Mrs. Bethune fashion, this time that she had gained back immediately began to fill with other things. (laughs) She became the president of the National Association of Colored Women the association that she dropped in on as a guest and posted a little note to the president asking to speak to the audience. So that bravery has come back to roost. She is now, as Mary Church Terrell had predicted, the president of the entire organization. She also joined the National Council of Women in the USA and was therefore a member of the International Women of the World, which as we shall see in a little bit, became a passport to a lot of meetings abroad. She began writing for national publications. She was as busy as ever. We look at it now and think, oh, that is so exhausting. But her friends at the time thought the same thing. At this point, Mrs. Bethune is about 53 years old, and her friends are looking at her and saying, you are wearing yourself out. This is an exhausting schedule. You didn't lighten your load. You just made it heavier. We would like to send you on a trip to relax. And being the way she was, Mrs. Bethune said, no, thank you. But being the way they were, and as is a pattern that's forming in her life, her friends all got together and funded a trip for her to Europe. So she had the opportunity to accompany a group of African-American doctors and their wives who were going on an organized tour to Europe. For a third time, her village, such as it was, which is now worldwide, (laughs) reached out and supplied her with good wishes, letters of introduction, and money. More money than she needed just for expenses. They wanted her to have spending money. They wanted her to be free and feel free. After all you've done, this is the least the world can do for you. Which reminds me so clearly of what happened when Clara Barton came home from war to open her door and see that trunk full of personal gifts waiting for her, and she broke down. Yeah. It was so important, even if it's not your M.O. to want gold stars, you know? Mm -hmm. It's always nice to know that you have been seen. 
that your work has been appreciated. I mean, you can be the most hardened person that gets in, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree completely. So she went on what's called a cook's tour, which I have to tell you, up until I looked into this, thought was simply the name of Anthony Bourdain's most famous book. <laughs> but in fact, it started in um, 1841. This travel agency started and they became sort of famous for, I guess, hustling is the word. And I don't mean hustling like tricking people, but like they were going to see everything. Mm-hmm. It was a package tour and they would go from one place to the other place to the other place. And man, did you see everything before you came home? You had a full journal. If only they had Instagram, that would have been the tour for you. Yeah. Books tour. Catch this. Catch that. Take a picture here. La, 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 la. <laughs> well, that's the kind of trip she was on. It was fast paced, but man, it was broad in scope. Mrs. Bethune, all the way across the ocean on the ship, worked her magic on board. By the time she'd arrived a few days later in London, it was like the cheer song, like, you want to be where everybody knows your name. <laughs> Everybody on that boat was feeling the allure, the itness of Mary McLeod Bethune. She had made acquaintances, connections, long-lasting friendships on board. That is how she is. And I think for the first time in a long time, that section of her personality was able to come to the forefront again. It was never really absent. She had guided it into a fundraising type of channel, but it was almost like she just emerged back from hibernation, that part of her. I'm, yeah. I'm glad to see it. Yeah. And I bet her friends were, too, that, you know, what they wanted for her began to happen so soon, you know. Yeah. Just on the way over. And it didn't stop. When she was in London, she was invited by none other than Lady Nancy Astor. I think we may have mentioned her back in the Gilded Age heiresses episode. But she was American-born and the first woman seated on the British House of Commons. So she's an American who's seated in Parliament. Yes. Um, she married into the British-raised branch of the Astor family. We did refer to that, like one of the members of the family just got irritated and pieced out. This particular husband of hers had gone to Eton. I mean, he was fully British, despite having been born American. So there you go. I mean, he he started early and, and integrated and he himself had been in Parliament. Well, since we're talking about people that married, I'm just going to throw this in right here. And this is for the Jeopardy question writers that I know listen, because I watch the show and I see so many things that we've talked about. I realize it's women's history. It's common knowledge. But it just seems so pointed. Here's a little trivia that you can use. Lady Nancy Astor, her sister Irene, had married an illustrator who based his most famous and prolific creation on his wife, Irene. That man was Charles Dana Gibson and his Gibson girls. So the Gibson girls are related to British aristocracy. Okay, wait, I have, okay, I didn't even write this down. I have a deeper cut. Okay. And this is actually so obscure that Jeopardy, don't even bother. Because <laughs> no one's going to even get it. Nancy Astor's first husband um, was a Mr. Shaw, and we have actually met the Shaw family before. Mr. Shaw was related to the Shaw who launched Edmonia Lewis's career as a sculptor. He was the white hero who had led a black regiment in the war and had perished on the field of battle and was immortalized in marble by our former subject, Edmonia Lewis. So Nancy Astor is like three degrees of separation from 
a lot that is happening. I know. I'm I'm golf clapping you pulling that one out of your brain. Very impressive. <laughs> well, anyway, back to Lady Astor. She threw Mrs. Bethune a garden party. She had also held a similar party for Mr. Booker T. Washington in a previous year. Also, the Lord Mayor of London had our Mrs. Bethune and friends to tea in the official residence. So they started high. (laughs) But she felt um, like we all felt in London, I think, for those of us that went on the trip, just the weight of the history and and her minuscule place in it. Mm -hmm. She started to realize, like I realized when I was reading the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that that history is the story of people who came before us and people are people. And, you know, they had an arc and then they left. And Westminster Abbey brought it all home to her. She looked around. She went to the poet's corner. She just felt the weight of history. She kept returning over and over to Westminster Abbey. And unlike Susan and I, who came out of there with COVID, (laughs) Mrs. Bethune came out with an understanding of those other bringers of lights, you know, the (laughs) other struggles for progress that had happened in history. When they went to Scotland, the nature of Scotland, the open spaces, the greenness, um, the, you know, the history overlaid by silence gave her the same feeling, the vastness, the grandeur, peace and inspiration. And while she was there, she was welcomed into the home of one Lady MacLeod, possibly connected through history. Genealogy was not as extreme as it is now. I think they just delighted in the similarity of the name and found each other delightful. So she was entertained by aristocracy in Scotland as well. And what she's not noticing is segregation. She's traveling all over Europe. She's going to Glasgow, Paris, Luxembourg, Belgium, Switzerland, Italy. No segregation. Unlike in the United States, where African-Americans had to be on guard at all times, I assure you, despite your level of education or propriety, Mrs. Bethune and friends were everywhere treated like plain old humans. Imagine that. More than that, like welcome, educated and interesting, stimulating new acquaintances that it was an honor to have met. You know, Mm -hmm. um, some American tourists once tried to complain to the management that what are these people doing sitting in the same room as us? And the European waiter's like, I don't know where you're from, but here people are customers and I bring them things. Like, I don't know. I'm not playing whatever game this is with you right Right, now. They are more welcome than you and you can certainly depart if you wish. I Goodbye. You know, when she was in Italy, she was part of a larger audience at the Vatican and the Pope singled her out and said in her ear in Latin, Oh, blessed art thou among women, which is a biblical quote. And it refers to Mary when she met up with Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist at the same time that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. According to Elizabeth, the baby jumped inside her womb and she said, blessed art thou among women to Mary. In Paris, she was actually disappointed at the appearance of the women that she had always thought would be the beau ideal of fashion. She herself was quite dressy. And now that she had the funds to do so, my goodness, did she dress like a very, very refined, aristocratic woman. 
Everyone remarked on it. She loved being photographed. We have lots of photographs of Mrs. Bethune, which is not very common um, for this time. So hooray for that and hooray for, I guess, justified vanity. But, um, I thought it was funny that she dressed better than the Parisians that she had professed to admire before. Right. What she did like about Paris and the Parisians was their absolute insistence upon leisure. Absolute insistence upon sitting, upon the importance of speaking with one's friends, taking time over one's meal, perambulating, sauntering. <laughs> and it was just not a pace she had ever been accustomed to. Like from the very beginning in the cotton fields, it was hustle, hustle, hustle. Time is money. Money is time. You've got lots to accomplish. And she was basically living her whole life on a checklist. And one thing France taught her was to stop and you're going to be more refreshed in and better able to serve if you yourself are a cup full, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of perambulating and fashion, while she was on this trip, she was walking over some really rough terrain. So she was using like a cane as a walking stick. So she's <laughs> using this cane and she decides she likes it, not necessarily to help her walk on non-rugged terrain, but she likes the swagger of it. So she took to using a cane, even though she most likely didn't actually need it. She just liked how it looked. She also liked the fact that, you know, it's rude to point, but you can point with a cane. Right. <laughs> you can gesture with a cane. You can sweep your arm threateningly with a cane. It was a very good punctuation. It became a personal trademark. Mm -hmm. I actually was at an antique mall the other day. I was taken by a picture in a glass case. I don't know if it was like excellent photography, but it was a whole bunch of canes. And it's just something you don't see too much anymore those ornate mm. who's to say maybe some of them had swords hidden in or flasks <laughs> she was temperance so hers didn't but <laughs> yeah <laughs> i would love for you to go google pictures of lady hikers which they called hill walkers in their long dresses in fraught situations oh yeah their alpenstocks um to keep them from plunging I think they are very brave. I mean, there's sometimes walking over glaciers. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen and their like multiple petticoats. Rock climbing. Like yeah. way up high without ropes. I mean, in that one occasion, can we not put on some jodhpurs right. or loose fitting trousers, harem pants, bloomers, something? <laughs> later hosen. Long later. Oh, that's funny. So when they went to Belgium, there was a little bit of apprehension. Now, we think of Belgium as the home of, you know, waffles and cones of French fries with mayonnaise. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Perhaps chocolate, you know. But King Leopold of Belgium had been the cruelest oppressor of the African people in his holdings in the Congo. I don't even want to tell you how bad he was. I mean, I don't even know what movie was that. I mean, was it Tarzan? Was it? Wakanda forever. I don't even remember which one where they covered what was happening in the Congo under King Leopold of Belgium. It was sort of an open secret that he was terrorizing the inhabitants. Um, their history in Africa was a famous one of brutality. So, so of course, this party entered that country with great trepidation and found that Belgium had moved forward from that history, at least at home. And Mrs. Bethune could only hope the same thing would happen back home in America. And while she was in Switzerland, she was touring a rose garden and she saw something she had never seen before, a black rose. 
And later she said, I realized the red rose didn't want to be the black rose. The black rose didn't want to be the yellow rose. Every rose just wanted to be itself, having the opportunity to make that self the best self it's capable of becoming. Lovely. I looked into I was like, I'm going to plant a black rose and I can't find it that it's a thing. There's very, very, very dark red ones, but not actual black ones that I can find. Yeah, for a while there, I was planting these punk rock, um, I think, petunias, <laughs> which you can still get, but they're actually even now still very dark purple. Um, right. I think you you really have to select. They're getting closer. There's black tulips that are really mm-hmm. dark purple. Yeah. Like, to the human eye, they're functionally black. Yeah. She did manage also to visit some serious locations, The Hague. And the League of Nations building in Geneva, Switzerland, she sat there and thought about how far there was to go. She was actually moving on up at home, um, turning things from regional slowly to her goal was to turn it to a national and then ultimately international. And this is the place where it could all happen. So she sat there and and dreamed a little bit. And everywhere in Europe, she looked also at the struggle, the histories, the accomplishments of the people became a part of her. There was a lot of reflection in this little restaurant that happened to be by Columbus's birthplace before all the knowledge of his bad deeds got out. And she recreated a little house on the campus of her school years later that looked a lot like this restaurant as a place to bring all her thoughts back together as a focus about all the things she learned on her trip. All in all, this trip was very satisfactory. She made connections. She got refreshment. She had education, inspiration, and then the joy of coming home. Upon her return and with the power of the presidency of the National Association of Colored Women, she was inspired to push for a national headquarters for the organization in Washington, D.C., it would be an official and public place to work from and draw members to. It was at 1114 O Street, cost a whopping $25,000. I'm sorry to say on Google Maps, it is fully a warehouse that covers the whole block, which is definitely a shame. But the organization having a footprint in Washington, D.C. was a very good move people started to recognize the power of the National Association of Colored Women. It's always good to be in the room where it happens, even if that room happens to be a whole city. And it's also good to be in the room when, in fact, the room is a actual room in a home. (laughs) (laughs) As a president of the National Association of Colored Women, she was automatically a member of the National Council of Women, which is an organization, like an umbrella organization of all these women's clubs across America, not necessarily black clubs, but all of them. So as a member of that organization, she was invited to a luncheon at the home of a woman we all know, Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor and her mother-in-law, Sarah, who we really haven't talked about too much, but she was a very strong force in Franklin's life. We're hosting this luncheon for these women. Mrs. Bethune was the only African-American person at this luncheon. And Sarah Roosevelt, Franklin's mom, noticed that Mrs. Bethune was getting eye daggers from two Southern women who were with their eyes kind of saying, a Black woman at this esteemed luncheon? So Sarah Roosevelt took Mrs. Bethune by the arm and said, 
Shall we head to the dining room? Please sit here at my right. People, at her right was the place of honor. So these women were giving these eye daggers, and here's Sarah Roosevelt saying, Put your daggers away, ladies. This woman is not only welcomed here, she is my guest of honor here. The friendship begun at this dinner between Sarah Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Mrs. Bethune lasted for the rest of Mrs. Bethune's life. The next year, President Calvin Coolidge sent her an invitation to join the Child Welfare Conference. They were going to talk about the state of things, um, maybe kind of fish around for what could be an opportunity to help the, quote, Negro population. And she was supposed to go there and hear what was going on in the rest of the country, learn a lot and pass it on. And that is what she did. Just like when she used to go to school and pass the information on, she absorbed the programs that were happening for child welfare throughout the country, kind of distilled them into the best of the best and went out and disseminated that information. She did the same thing the next administration under the Hoover administration, and then she put things into practice. She realized that federal grants were available to Negro institutions. Oh, oh, this has been kept on the low low, hasn't it? But now, now that I know, we're all going to know. <laughs> and in fact, she was able to parlay her knowledge and the availability of, of grant funds to make two new buildings on her campus, Faith Hall and the Science Hall. In fact, Hoover was so happy with everything that had happened um, with her participation that he also invited her to be on the commission of home building and home ownership as, I'm, I mean, this is a lot to put on somebody, as the representative of, quote, the Negro needs in this area. That's a lot of responsibility. You know, she is carrying the banner for millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, her whole perspective was so valuable to that commission that Hoover praised her contributions both personally and um, officially, you know, out loud and also to her directly. So we have gone a long way so that the president personally calls you and tells you thank you for helping him do something. But somebody else came into her life that was even better than the president. In 1930, Mrs. Bethune traveled to Los Angeles she was going to be speaking at a meeting, and while she was on this trip, she took a little side trip to visit Mary Chrisman, the woman who had been supporting her financially since she was a young girl through her education. She finally got to meet her live and in person. And as, you know, somebody who's met internet friends, I know how wonderful meeting someone in person is. So I can only imagine that what she experienced was like, 8,000 times what, you know, you and I would. During her speech at that meeting, she directed this to Mrs. Chrisman, invest in a human soul. Who knows? It might be a diamond in the rough. She also gave a tribute and flowers to Miss Chrisman in front of the entire meeting and said, my dear Miss Chrisman, the hundreds of women you were seeing here and the thousands of women across America and the Isles of the Sea, I don't know quite what that meant, <laughs> are reaping the benefit of your investment in me. They and all the others I have touched join in bringing gratitude to you. If you had not sacrificed, no leadership would have been given to me. If it were not for you and others of similar generosity, very few of us would be here today to render bountiful service in their turn. Please accept this tribute with prayers on our lips that God may grant you many more years 
and that others like you throughout history may be raised to carry on his work. I mean, that is full circle. Miss Chrisman at home sewing things and embroidering them in her spare time, giving all of that second job money to a girl she'd never met for a purpose that she might never have seen, mm-hmm. you know? Um, in fact, she didn't ever get to see the school because of her poor health. But I am so grateful that not only did they meet, but that Miss Chrisman got publicly thanked mm-hmm. for that sacrifice. You just don't know. You you drop a pebble in the water and the ripples just go and go, mm-hmm. don't they? They do. They absolutely do. Once upon a time, here's a little light story among all the like acronyms and presidents and blah, blah, blah. There was a young man. A writer named Langston Hughes, who once upon a time was invited to give a speech at Bethune-Cookman College. And after the speech and, and meet and greet and dinner was over, she decided that she was going to accept a lift from him all the way back to New York City in his car. <laughs> and he was quite concernicus because he has in his car basically that everyone's mother of progress, and he was going to have to transport her through the Deep South in a time when that was not very safe. I mean, the the green book had not yet been invented, which is the guidebook that'll tell, quote, Negro travelers where it might be safe to stay, what towns to stay away from. He was worried that he wouldn't be able to feed her or that they would have to have an uncomfortable sleeping in the car situation. But he said, all the way along the road to New York, Colored people along the entire eastern seaboard spread a feast and opened their homes whenever they heard Mrs. Bethune was passing their way. And then he joked that chickens, sensing Mrs. Bethune was coming, would fly off frantically seeking a hiding place because they knew a heaping platter of southern fried chicken would soon be made in her honor. (laughs) And that was a dish at that time that was sort of reserved for when the preacher came. I mean, if you killed a chicken and ate it, you were cutting off egg production. Mm -hmm. You know, a chicken was for for nice. A chicken was for special occasions. And poor old chickens all along the eastern seaboard were for the chop. (laughs) But he never had to worry about it because everyone along the way reached out their hand to take care of both of them on the way. And I thought that was very, um, that was very touching. I'm sad that it was necessary. It's irritating as heck, of course. Shameful. But I'm glad that it was handled by her reputation and the love everyone had for her and the work she had done for them. I wonder what they talked about. Like, can you imagine them on a road trip? I love having intellectual sparring matches with with smart friends in an enclosed space. (laughs) Wait a second. I don't remember us ever. Oh, (laughs) Uh, I love that. There's a reason I used to hang out with the philosophy majors in in college, you know, it's super fun. I think it was probably great. (music) 
Due to the headquarters of the NACW being in Washington, D.C., Mrs. Bethune began to spend a considerable amount of time in that city. But it wasn't just hold up in the office type of work. She participated in the life of the city and the political life of the people around her. In particular, joining these protests that were called the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work initiative. Now, she participated in Washington, D.C. It happened in a lot of cities. Basically, um, it was overtly a protest against the People's Drugstore, who didn't allow African-Americans to work in their store. However, they were happy to take your money, but they thought that was an imbalance of power. And so the initiative grew to don't work where you can't clerk was another one of the (laughs) things. The protests expanded to cover major stores, factories and restaurants. The boycotts of these businesses led to increased Black-owned businesses in the cities in which these protests had taken place. The power of the African-American purse strings became evident to the white population, and also there were increased opportunities for Black employment. This is a direct ancestor of the Montgomery bus boycotts and the blueprint for later civil rights activities like the lunch counter sit-ins. They put white America on notice. Here's another ancestor of the large-scale civil rights activism of the 1960s. In 1939, the DAR refused to have singer of color Marian Anderson perform within a building for one of their meetings. And Marian Anderson ended up, due to the actions of Eleanor Roosevelt, singing instead outside for a large audience at the Lincoln Memorial. And historians often give credit to Mrs. Bethune for influencing Eleanor Roosevelt to protest in the first place. When she was 60, the NAACP gave her the Springer Medal, which is the highest honor they may bestow, quote, for the highest and noblest achievements of an American Negro. Not that she needed more recognition to know her own worth, but this was like the crown. This was the crown. Despite all the achievements African-Americans in general and Mrs. Bethune in particular had achieved, there was still a dark shadow hanging over the United States. A dark shadow that I still can't believe hadn't been addressed effectively by the government of the United States. And that would be lynching. In Mrs. Bethune's lifetime, approximately 4,500 Black Americans had been lynched. Mrs. Bethune decided to try and harness the power of women's organizations, not just in the Black community, but white women's organizations in the South. So she formed a organization called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. And on paper and at the beginning, these women were all on board. Yes, we need to stop this. This is awful. They had all those committee things. But when it actually came down to time to pass legislation, this organization of white women would not support it because these women didn't want federal involvement to supersede states' rights. Can I please tell you, in another shameful latecomer to the party, that it wasn't until March 7th, 2022, that the very first anti-lynching bill passed both houses of Congress. Let me say that again. March 7th, 2022. That was almost exactly a year ago today as of this recording. Mm -hmm. So frustrated by the 
just the lack of direction and kind of the punking out at the last minute of of some of her allies, she decided in a move that is very similar to the way that she had so long ago combined all the Southern African-American women's groups into one umbrella organization. She created a national group called the National Council of Negro Women, which is, and I quote, a federation of national women's organizations to improve the Negro woman's integration into the political, economic, cultural, and social lives of the nation. It was she and other notable activists who were just frustrated by the slow pace. And so they were going to work toward federal programs, federal legislation now. They had the connections to do so. What they needed was the might. What they needed was the face and the organization. And here's another byproduct. She saw this as a place like a hub for young women coming out with their new educations to finally have a place to use their talents for the common good of African-Americans. At last, it was almost like the whole house. Mm. All of these educated African-American women were were frustrated that they had achieved what they had been taught to achieve. And then there were no opportunities to deploy, you know, and so this would be a way to integrate these up and coming young women into a powerful national organization. The year before this organization had been founded, FDR, who was now president, had created the National Youth Association, which was one of those New Deal organizations we talked about during the Frances Perkins episode. It was aimed at job training, placement, and scholarship for youth aged 16 to 25. The needs of African-American youth were more dire. They were twice as likely to be unemployed, to be out of school. Segregation and prejudice meant that African-Americans lost out to white workers most of the time. Mrs. Bethune was summoned to a meeting at the White House. And this was the first time, despite having been friends with his wife for nearly six years and his mother for even longer than that, this is the first time they had ever met in person. She walked in the door and he smiled and said the words, I know you. <laughs> she had a strategy when she came into this meeting. She wasn't 100% sure what it was going to be, but she was going to try to make people understand how dire the situation was for black youth in America. Like regardless of what he had summoned her there for, she had it, you know, she had it something prepared. And she had the idea that if she could make someone in the room cry, that's her goal for the day. So she set out to storytell and she spoke directly to FDR himself and she told him that for the amount of money that a man going to Harvard spent on cigarettes in a week, that $15 could change the life of a Negro young man forever. They could pay doctor's bills. They could get books. They could get an education. She said, we are bringing life and spirit to thousands of people who for so long have lived in darkness. And now I speak, Mr. President, not as Mrs. Bethune but as the voice of 14 million Americans who seek to achieve full citizenship. We have been taking the crumbs of this country for a long time. We've been eating the feet and head of the chicken long enough. The time has come, sir. We want some white meat. There's no place in business. There's no place in government we can go where we feel we really belong. The further an individual is down, the more chance he may have to come up. But if the Negro cannot find his way to the opportunities that are opening, he must have someone to guide him, sir. And 
She said, there is already a belief in this country, sir, that they may have somebody in the White House who cares about them. And she shook her finger at him and then immediately is like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But he said he had a plan and he gave her a job. Her job was to head up a new department of the National Youth Association, the Division of Minority Affairs. She was to conduct visits to National Youth Association offices across the country to make sure that the offices themselves were integrated. So if the offices were integrated, then the scope of the helping that these offices were going to do would also become integrated. She immediately declined. For the first time, she said, whoa, this would be the highest ranking federal position that an African-American woman had ever held. For the first time, she felt a little trepidation, like, who am I? She declined at first. And one of the men in the room caught up to her and said, you got to do it. If you don't do it, he's going to get a man. Right. You, ha you have to do it. And she was very quiet. And she thought about the likes of Frances Perkins, the lady we have just covered, and how Frances Perkins also at the beginning didn't want to do it, but how much good she had done for the world and how much had she, even Frances Perkins, had opened the door for Mrs. Bethune to have this job. Mm -hmm. True. Sometimes <laughs> FDR didn't need a lot of softening, but sometimes he just needed a shaking, you know? Right. And so <laughs> Frances Perkins and Eleanor Roosevelt had done the shaking and now it was the time for the fruit and she was the fruit and she <laughs> had to go. It was right up her alley. I mean, her whole purpose is to help Black youth through the United States through education and training. That's what she's been doing all these years. How is she not the perfect person for the job is my question. And so on with the show, you know, the NYA's purpose was, quote, to relieve acute conditions of distress and unemployment in the United States and to provide for the restoration of the country's natural resources and the advancement of an orderly program of useful public works. There were, under her auspices, federal programs that were directed at HBUs, historically black universities. Federal positions for African-Americans within organizations and committees were in her power to give. And by the end of her tenure, she had 26 state committees that had black members by the time she left. There was an ever-expanding and powerful network of advocates and workers she had set up within many federal organizations. There was, however, despite all of this, some people would say infiltration, I would just say integration, there was a long way to go because in 1937, during FDR's second inaugural, she showed up with her prized invitation he invited her to his inaugural and the gatekeeper of tickets tried to get her to sit in the back row, mm, called her auntie. Ouch. Auntie, you'd better sit in the back row. And she said, which one of my sister's boys are you? Right. You know, I'm not your auntie. I'm Mrs. Bethune and I'm not going to sit in the back row. I see delightful seats up front and I, that's where I'll be going. And she just peaced and went to her seat, her seat right next to the stage. Hooray. Where she belonged. <laughs> well, she was always battling. I mean, I don't think she let any of those comments go unchecked. Uh, one time she was at a commission meeting on interracial cooperation, and she had suggested an amendment to one of their programs. And the chairwoman called it, quote, Mary's Amendment. 
And Mrs. Bethune stood up and she said, as a delegate from Florida, I must insist on the respect of that sovereign. Enter into record that resolutions were presented by Mrs. Mary Bethune. I mean, she was always doing it, correcting people on things that they shouldn't be saying. She did. However, she did internalize it to some degree. Here's a quote from her. While I felt very much at home, I looked about myself longingly for any other dark faces. In all that great group, I felt a sense of being quite alone. And then I thought how vitally important it was that I be here to help these others get used to seeing us in high places. And so, while I sip tea and the brilliance of the White House, my heart reaches out to the Delta Land and the Bottom Land. I know so well why I must be here. I must go to tea at the White House. To remind the White House always that we belong here. We are a part of this America. So let's have a little, since this is an official federal position, let's have a little bit of statistics. She traveled 40,000 miles a year to visit and advise and oversee operations in 21 different states. 150,000 African-American children were able to finish high school under her programs. 60,000 of them were able to attend college. And she uh, instituted this sort of scholarship and fundraising arm that was the predecessor of the United Negro College Fund. Opponents of the New Deal in general and her program in particular wished to remove her funding and Mrs. Bethune fought personally to retain the funding from FDR himself, and he put some pressure on people in Congress to keep it in place a little bit longer. So she looked around and she saw that she was not the only African-American in federal government. She saw other people, men, who were heading organizations and were influential people, advisors to the president. So she organized all of them together, all of them into a group officially called the Federal Council for Negro Affairs, unofficially called the Black Cabinet. She told the members, let us forget the particular office each of us holds. We must think in terms as a whole for the greatest service of our people. Here is some response from the audience. Mrs. Bethune had the most marvelous gift of affecting feminine helplessness in order to attain her ends with masculine ruthlessness. She knew how to pull out all the stops in her beautiful speaking voice in order to achieve the exact result desired from a large audience or to one or two listeners. At one point, there was a debate like in PTA, like, is it the parade committee or the spirit committee that provides the shirts? Like something dumb like that. And she stood up and said, children, I am an old, confused woman. I want you to help me. Let's forget this parliamentary nonsense and get down to common sense. Now you tell me, what is it that we want to do? (laughs) One of the ladies in the room said Broadway missed something when they missed Mrs. Bethune, but she has made the world her stage. So even in that room, this powerful force that had been gathered from all these high echelons of black achievement bowed to her will and the magical it that she had. You know, one of the things they talked about in this conference was single payer health insurance. Again, everybody's trying. I know. (laughs) Nobody is getting it done. They also, and this is... This is pretty radical for the time that they were talking about the availability of birth control being an important issue and also boycotting like in a national way entities that practice segregation, whether civil or government. And she was actively working against what she called residential ghettos. And we have a famous one in Kansas City, actually. 
not necessarily a ghetto, but there was a practice called redlining where real estate agents wouldn't sell to people of color past a certain street. In Kansas City's case, it was called Troost. I mean, Troost is still there, but it's no longer redlined. But it's a pretty famous, like to the point where my son keeps studying it in school, um, the phenomenon of redlining on Troost. And she was very, very obviously against that. And she tried desperately in a move to try to get a more equitable civil service. She tried to get the civil service to switch to fingerprints instead of photographs on the applications for civil service. Because you know what that would do? That would make you look at accomplishments and ability and not the face. And they protested saying it would be too expensive. Because a photograph is free. As we talked about in the Francis Perkins episode, departments during FDR's terms, you know, they kind of changed their focus and changed their name to target helping certain communities. And FDR had realized that the South was being hit harder because not only of the Depression, but because of segregation and that the Black communities were hit harder than anybody else in the entire country. So he turned the Commission on Interracial Cooperation into the Southern Conference on Human Welfare. And even a meeting of this organization, segregation touches it in an ugly way. There was a meeting held in Birmingham, Alabama, of the Southern Conference on Human Welfare. Eleanor Roosevelt and Mrs. Bethune walked in to this meeting together, chatting away, sat down together, and one of the organizers came over and tapped Eleanor on the shoulder, and she said, "Um, Mrs. First Lady, you have to sit on the other side of the aisle. It's the law, meaning the white people are on the other side. You cannot sit in this Black section. And... I don't think the eye roll was visible, but what Eleanor Roosevelt did was take her chair and moved it to the middle of the aisle and refused to move any farther. So even at a meeting that's designed to address the problem of segregation, there's segregation problems. I know. And you know, if it cannot be cracked by the first lady, I mean, that's what that's what we're up against. Mm -hmm. A power greater than the White House, you know, Yeah. (laughs) at this point, not to make too light of it. And, and, you know, frustrations were justifiably boiling. One Dr. Johnson, the president of Fisk University, who was on the Black Cabinet with Mrs. Bethune, said, no government can be guided by the most resentful protest of a disadvantaged people. The leaders in every political party are under great pressure from every point of view. There come moments when they can do something for a minority group like ours, but they themselves will be paralyzed unless they have before them a clear-cut indication of what it is exactly we want them to do. And so, the Black vote was increasingly becoming a force to be reckoned with in politics, with this kind of leadership in the Black cabinet. Historically, Black voters had voted Republican. It's the party of Lincoln. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you why they started there, right? But during the Depression years of the 1930s and FDR's administration in particular, there was a giant wave of immigration from Black voters from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, who was basing its platform more on equality and civil rights. A lot of the influence came from Mary McLeod Bethune who herself switched parties, not from the platform, she said, but from the party's actions. And of course, her recommendation went a long way. 
along with the rest of the recommendations of the intellectual elite that was um, increasingly impatient with inaction. By 1940, 60% of black votes were now Democratic votes, and it would grow to over 90% by the end of the Johnson administration in the 1960s. So Mrs. Bethune was now shaping the behavior and the ideals of an entire country. The fact that she is here at the ground floor and has her fingers in all of these things just blows my mind that her name isn't as, you know, recognizable as Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, I'm just it just blows me away. She's in so many organizations at high ranking positions. It's kind of impossible to list them all without being boring. You know, if we ever cover Eleanor Roosevelt and the reason we haven't is every time we start something dire happens and we're sort of afraid. Um <laughs> We're superstitious now. I know. Um, But one thing that we wanted to make very clear was that Mrs. Roosevelt reached out to Mrs. Bethune all the time to ask for advice. Um, You know how you have like, I'm going to put this a little lightly, but you know how you have that friend that's good at decorating or you might have a friend that's good at fixing cars and you naturally just think, oh, I got to call them and ask what, what do I do here? Right. It was very common for Mrs. Roosevelt to reach out to Mrs. Bethune in that way. And then conversely, when Mrs. Bethune needed heft, force, power, or just an overcoming of an obstacle that Mrs. Roosevelt could wield her wand and just handle, she did not hesitate to reach out. They were just a mutual admiration society. And as a matter of fact, once upon a time... Anna Roosevelt, Eleanor's daughter, said, you know what, Mrs. Bethune, I do believe that you and my mother are the most beloved and admired women in the world. And when Eleanor Roosevelt heard that, she said, oh, how dare Anna try to put me on the same level as you? Aw, it's lovely. On the 35th anniversary of the founding of Bethune-Cookman College, which is, you know, now a college, She invited Mrs. Roosevelt to come down for the festivities because that is where her heart was said Mrs. Bethune, and, and she would like to introduce her friend to her heart. And the visit of Mrs. Roosevelt caused great consternation in the land. The white people of Florida were very, very afraid. Like, A, they didn't want Mrs. Roosevelt there in the first place because she was not of their mind, you know, mm-hmm. politically. Second, they did not want a white lady staying at that college. They didn't want it. They actively came to take a call on Mrs. Bethune to encourage her not to have that happen. It would be catastrophic. She did arrange for uh, Mrs. Roosevelt to have a, a hotel room, but the city police refused to provide security. So crazy. But you know what? Everything was going to go okay. They were outside. They were getting ready to hear Mrs. Roosevelt speak. Everyone was so excited to have their first lady on campus and it started to rain. And Mrs. Bethune stood out there and she shook her finger at God and said, I have been working for this moment for my whole life. You are not going to spoil this for me. (laughs) And the rain stops. (laughs) Mrs. Roosevelt was so taken with everything she saw at that school. And she said, I hadn't realized what an uphill climb this had been for you until I have seen what you've accomplished. And she made a point from then on in Washington, D.C. to have almost like special meet cutes. I, I don't know how to put it any other way between uh, Mrs. Bethune and possible donors and enthusiasts to her school to make certain that the um, Bethune-Cookman College always had the funding it needed. 
that's the way that she could um, help her friend because she knew that's where her friend's heart had been. Like, despite her government work, there's this beating heart down in Florida that like was always a constant on her mind, just like a child. You know, like the child might grow up and and it's being taken care of by a spouse or someone else or a board of trustees. And but <laughs> but you never forget, you know, and, and it's like your heart walking around outside your body. Yeah. So that was a good thing that she did for her friend. At this point, Mrs. Bethune is 64 years old, and you cannot run a body as hard as she's been running hers her entire life without having some type of physical ailments. And her health was starting to suffer. One of the things that was bothering her to a point that she needed surgery was her sinuses. So here is an obstacle. Mrs. Bethune, of course, owning her hospital, had African-American doctors who treated her. Here's the challenge She needed specialist surgery and she needed it from her doctors. But the problem is the hospital that had the experts had a policy. Black doctors were not permitted to treat patients inside white hospitals. The end. Enough said. Well, Mrs. Roosevelt pulled some strings. Um, They were not even going to allow her as a patient to come into Johns Hopkins where she needed to be. Mrs. Roosevelt had to pull some strings, and unfortunately, the only amenable doctors were located in the gynecological ward. The surgical ward wouldn't have her, and a German man was her surgeon for this surgery. But Mrs. Bethune insisted, even though the hospital's policy was that those black doctors could not treat patients and they could not even be called in as consultants on a surgery, In that facility, Mrs. Bethune insisted that they be in the room as observers. And her point is she was using this as a wedge to get them in the door. The surgery was successful. Eleanor Roosevelt sent flowers. But John D. Rockefeller sent a very large check to Bethune-Cookman College in her honor. The 1940s are progressing. And of course, the United States entered World War II. And of course, Mrs. Bethune adjusted her missions in life. This time, she's out to make sure that defense contractors didn't discriminate based on race, creed, color, or national origin. That's like her main focus. The National Youth Organization is kind of reforming itself as we are coming out of the Depression and its main purpose is no longer needed. There's now regional offices instead of state offices. And as young people went to war, Mrs. Bethune was fighting for Black assistance in these offices. If they couldn't go to war, they could still serve their communities in these offices. And she's continuing to push for programs that teach trades like sheet metal work or auto mechanics and that these programs were fully integrated. So even though there's a war going on, she still has her eye on what's happening in these National Youth Association offices. Also, she was released from her duties temporarily at the NYA to be an assistant to a woman with the name Ovita Culp Hobby, Lieutenant Colonel Ovita Culp Hobby. So she was the commanding officer of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which we know as the WACS. And Mrs. Bethune was in charge for selecting, quote, Negro women to join the very first officer's training school to allow Negro women to participate. And everyone was very concernicus because this Lieutenant Colonel Hobby was from Texas. This could go very wrong, but um, I don't know if it was that 
Mrs. Bethune was good in a room or that Lieutenant Colonel Hobby was naturally unbiased, but the Lieutenant Colonel placed no barriers in her way. And out of 450 officer candidates here in Des Moines, 40 were African-American. Doesn't seem like a high percentage, but it's almost 10% and it's far better than 0%. Mm -hmm. And it was a step in the right direction. Mrs. Bethune loved the wax. She really did. She loved the whole concept of the wax and how it gave women a voice in the war effort, etc. She did not love the segregation. She did not love the fact that the companies of white wax and African-American wax were separated in dormitories. There's very little that Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hobby could do because it was, you know, by law. And of course, she's bound not only by law, but by military regulations. Right. Um, she did the best you can. You take the steps you can take. The Women's Army for National Defense, which everyone called the Wands, um, made Mrs. Bethune a general. And she literally had four stars on her uniform. <laughs> yeah. A, um, she had a uniform. And B, now she's a general. I mean, she's all along, she's been getting more and more honorary doctorates. But this time, it's an honorary general position. Very cool. And it should be noted that even though the wax were all about segregation, the wands actually always allowed African-Americans to serve. So I don't know what that is. The wands is probably more like um, more like the National Guard, I guess, mm -hmm. and perhaps less um, subject to the strict hierarchies of official military life. I don't know. But one thing that Mrs. Bethune did during the war is um, using her expertise just the way Frances Perkins did for a little bit of forward thinking about how soldiers coming back from the theater of war, which is not pronounced theater in this case, <laughs> um, were going to reintegrate into society. And there's like a multi-layered situation when you have African-American soldiers coming home. So what had started in World War One with that one Ms. Davis coming in as a nurse was slowly the wedge was pushing in and Ms. Bethune was very happy to see in hospitals that she toured, there were both practical nurses, mostly recruited from the wax, and also practical nurses, like trained African-American nurses that had graduated from programs all over the country had poured in to treat African-American soldiers returning from war. She was very dismayed to hear that the army um, was planning to establish separate hotels in major cities in the north to accommodate veterans coming home from overseas. And she was infuriated and she asked FDR himself to stop it. And so in the back channels, he told everyone there was to be no segregation in the Army's rehabilitation program for returning soldiers. And sure enough, that was an integrated program. And that's all down to the exhortations of Mrs. Bethune, that returning veterans all having served their country should all be treated to the finest of medical care among their fellow soldiers who, after all, had had the same goal. They're from the same country. They're all citizens and should be treated equally. And so that was accomplished really by an impassioned plea to the president of the United States. You might ask, where is she finding the time to do all of this? Right before the start of the war, she stepped down as president of Bethune-Cookman College, but she did not have to move out of her house that she had on campus. She was named President Emeritus, so she's president in honor for life, and kept her house on the campus. And she also had a place to live 
in the D.C. offices of the National Council of Negro Women. So this building that they had erected in Washington for this organization had rooms on the top floor so women could stay there if they were in between housing situations. And she lived on another floor. So she had a house in Florida and a house in Washington, D.C. She's still working with Eleanor Roosevelt. One of the projects that just jumped out at me is that Mrs. Bethune had heard that there were funds that had been earmarked for a housing project in Detroit. Detroit. This isn't even where she lives. Detroit. But she learned that they were being diverted to a white neighborhood to improve that. So with Eleanor's help and with the ear of the president, she was able to help steer the project back on track. And the Sojourner Truth housing project became a reality in Detroit. There's another former subject. Yay! The war has come. The soldiers have gone. Everybody's working toward a common goal. Time has passed. There's been ample opportunity to fix a lot of things that has not been fixed. And she wrote, in an hour of national peril, efforts are being made to defeat the Negroes first in America and the Axis powers later. We are now proposing to draft a new charter of race relations in the South. The old charter is paternalistic and traditional. We now want a new charter that is fraternalistic and scientific. The old charter is not compatible with the manhood and security of the Negro. Neither is it compatible with the dignity and self-respect of the South. The Negro has paid the full price of citizenship in the South and in the nation, and now the Negro wants to enjoy the full exercise of his citizenship no more and no less. So do you sense the tone of the civil rights movement that we learn about in school, Mm -hmm. you know, from the 60s? We are now starting to see where the patience has run out, Mm -hmm. Um, justifiably so, but we're now even decades earlier than we are taught in school that it begins, that impatience, that direct conversation, it's already going long before these people are are really born. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, the war is over. Her responsibilities to the college have lessened. Maybe it's time for her to retire. Maybe a nice beach retirement. Well, in Daytona, the beaches were at the time segregated. The Black community members needed to buy a special permit to go on the world-famous Daytona Beach. And, of course, these permits were not readily available, and they were hard to get. So Mrs. Bethune organized even more fundraisers, this time to buy a a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of property that was on the beach. And the Bethune-Volusia Beach opened up. No permit was required. And on the property that was abutted up against this beach, Black members of the community were encouraged to buy land to build an even larger community on the beach because at the time, the property was affordable. But everybody knew that this beachfront property was going to be very expensive in a very short period of time. So she wanted to make sure that her community was in on those investments in real estate. Mrs. Bethune, during the course of the war, had participated several times in in meetings that sought to improve the lives of people that were, in fact, our allies in this war, the Russians, and also the people of Yugoslavia who were undergoing some torments of their own. Her point was that she had now gone national. The next step is international. Help is help. People are people. She will help where she finds the trouble. And it didn't even really occur to her how that would look from the outside or she didn't really care. 
The National Youth Association started to be um, known as a communist organization, a leftist organization, to which she just said, I'm an unapologetic New Dealer, whatever you want to call me, that's fine. But she got hauled, didn't she, in front of that famous Committee on Un-American Activities. They summoned her to Congress. She stayed out of it for a long time. She sure did. The thing is, people people were sort of outraged. You know, they had come up against somebody whose reputation was sort of mm, out there and also kind of unsullyable. Mm. Her defenders were many, and she finally was forced to take up a stand and just issue like a statement. She thought it was ridiculous. She said, the absurdity of this charge inclined me at first to ignore it. I feel now, however, I should brand this accusation for what it is, a malicious misstatement of the truth. But really, what progressive (laughs) wasn't accused of being a communist in the 1950s? And it was just kind of something that happened. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt also came to give a good word for her in her nationally syndicated newspaper column. She said of Mrs. Bethune being in a communist organization, quote, if she did belong to any, I'm sure with her keen mind, she soon discovered something wrong and was not a member long. If she went to them to speak, she undoubtedly did them good. Well, Mrs. Bethune was even more direct. I do not know this Republican senator, and because of his accusation, I'm positive he does not know me. But if he sees fit to name me a communist as my result of my outspoken belief in a true democracy, my incessant efforts in seeking for all Americans the constitutionally guaranteed rights of full citizenship, regardless of race, creed, or color, my endeavors to enlist the full cooperative strength of America in our victory efforts, then the names this senator chooses to apply are to me nothing at all. I shall continue along the straight true course I have followed, and I pray some divine signal may sound in the mind of this senator that may awaken him to a realization that his accusations against loyal Americans will bring them but small discomfort, but can be of great comfort to our enemies. And she just went on working. She was chosen by the State Department to serve as a consultant on the newly formed United Nations. So she's got her fingers involved in the United Nations. As a U.N. consultant, her focus was on the rights of people in colonized countries. Unfortunately, it was an effort that was, for the most part, ignored. So not all of her campaigns were successful. This was one of them. But she's still a consultant to the formation of the United Nations. What isn't she involved in that's happening during this period of time? In 1949, she received an honorary Doctor of Humanities degree from Rollins College. She was the first African-American to receive an honorary degree from a white Southern college. She also received the Medal of Honor and Merit from the Republic of Haiti that same year when she went for a visit. The National Council of Negro Women had been working with the uh, Haitian women's movement throughout the war years. There was a sort of mutual aid society between the women of Haiti and organizations in Washington, D.C. President Truman is even sending her to Africa as a representative of the United States at the inauguration of their president. At last. Yes. You know, at last she's gotten to Africa that she wanted to go when she was 18 or 19 and had been prevented from going. And at last she was sent on an official delegation. I love that. Mm hmm. 
Now that she's in her mid-70s and she's still going strong, she's looking towards the future and she established the Mary McLeod Bethune Foundation. The whole purpose of this organization was for research, for scholarships, and to foster international goodwill within the Black communities throughout the world. And she did live to see Brown versus Board of Education resolved in 1954. This was a turning point in the civil rights movement. The Supreme Court decided that segregation was indeed unconstitutional and all schools in the United States needed to desegregate. So this is an accomplishment in education that she was able to see happen in her lifetime. Unfortunately, exactly one year and one day after Brown versus Board of Education, on May 18, 1955, Mary McLeod Bethune died of a heart attack in her home on the campus of Bethune-Cookman College. She was 79 years old. Her funeral services were held five days later on May 23rd at the Bethune-Cookman College Auditorium in White Hall. Her beloved choir was behind the altar just singing for her glory. There's pictures of it, and her coffin is right in front of the altar, like at every funeral. And then there's a choir, and it's kind of like she's right where she would have been if she was directing them. It was a packed house and obviously a very religious service, but she is buried on that university campus near her home in Daytona Beach, Florida, And her headstone reads, she has given her best that others may live a more abundant life. Eleanor Roosevelt, in her My Day syndicated newspaper column, said this of her friend on her death. She has been quick to seize every opportunity which presented itself to come more and more into the open and strive directly to uplift the race and nation, and that her achievements have been amazing. A year before she passed away, she had written an essay, which is her last will and testament. It was held back until her passing a year later. And in August of 1955, after her death, it was printed in Ebony Magazine. We'll provide you a link to the text, but the headings are as follows. My last will and testament. Sometimes I ask myself if I have any legacy to leave. My worldly possessions are few, yet my experiences have been rich. From them, I've distilled principles and policies in which I firmly believe. Perhaps in them, there's something of value. So, as my life draws to a close, I will pass them on to Negroes everywhere in the hope this philosophy may give them inspiration. Here, then, is my legacy. I leave you love. I leave you hope. I leave you a thirst for education. I leave you faith. I leave you racial dignity. I leave you a desire to live harmoniously with your fellow men. I leave you, finally, a responsibility to our young people. If I have a legacy to leave to my people, it is my philosophy of living and serving. As I face tomorrow, I am content. I pray now that my philosophy may be helpful to those who share my vision of a world of peace. That's beautiful. I I would expect nothing less from her as her last words, but man, that's super powerful. I mean, this is rags to riches in the influence department, Mm -hmm. you know? However, from the very moment of her birth, her mother said she was destined for something special. So is it that everyone assumed she would be special and so she went out in the world with the faith that she was? Mm. Did she get born with a natural confidence? Had her mother instilled in her the importance? I mean, you know, where does this come from? Where does this power 
I have no idea. Yeah. So it's amazing. So she wrought large with with no resources uh, monetarily. Think about just how she changed the shape of voting in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just can't. Again, I said this before. I just can't believe she was involved in so many changes in that, you know, that century. Yeah. Do you learn about Mary McLeod Bethune in school? Mm-mm. No, you, you really don't. No. Nope. And, and you know, we said the same thing about Frances Perkins. I mean, behind the scenes, really, in the case of Frances Perkins, but like overtly and with great joy in public in in uh, Mrs. Bethune's case. But both of these women, now we don't learn about them in school. I know. And so we are left thinking that FDR came up with everything on his own and was influenced by no one and just was the boss and the king. And it actually humanizes FDR to tell you that he is influenced by an intellectual, well-thought-out, reasoned argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the the power of reason and documentation and in one memorable case, the power of someone making him cry. Right. By telling him his story of how much his work was hoped for by all of the people in America that were counting on him to do the right thing. The thing that just keeps hitting me, we are recording this in Women's History Month, and it's supposed to be a month that's dedicated to learning about the women in history. And Beckett, I hope that our ripples are that it's not just a month, that people will learn about the Mary McLeod Bethunes in school and learn more about the Frances Perkinses and everybody that we talk about, except maybe Elizabeth Bathory. (laughs) I guess, you know what? Let's celebrate National Women's History Month this way. If we, and we we say this all the time, blithely at the end, tell a few friends about Mm -hmm. about the podcast, but if... At any point in your listening, we have have taught you something or introduced you to someone or, or brought the light in any way into your mind or life. I wish that you would pass on the light in whatever way to at least one other person. Mm-hmm. And that way our ripples, Susan and my ripples could go out in the world. I mean, I guess that's a good legacy yeah, to have. It is. So, Speaking of legacies... Mrs. Bethune had one. Uh, In 1974, a statue of her with children was placed in Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C. In 1985, she was on a postage stamp. In 2000, the American Red Cross awarded the first Millennium Hero Award at Bethune-Cookman University in honor of Mrs. Bethune's humanitarian work. So the very first of these awards that they gave out was for her. The National Council of Negro Women is still going strong, and we will link you up to their work in the show notes. Uh, The house on Vermont Avenue, where their headquarters were, is a National Historic Site run by the National Park Service, and it contains the National Archives for Black Women's History. In 2022, which remember, what happened in 2022 that you talked about? It's called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. In the same year, her statue was placed in Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. She replaced a Confederate general who had been in that place. They removed his statue and replaced it with hers. It's a beautiful statue. She is in an academic cap and gown. It's a white statue. She has a black rose in her hand. And on the pedestal, it said, let her works praise her. 
And now it's time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. I think that you and I have very different books on this one, which is delightful because that means that there's a lot out there on her. The one that I used most heavily was Mary McLeod Bethune by Emma Gelder Stern. Um, It was the largest biography that I had, but it was very well written. It it was linear and it read like a novel, which I always appreciate. All right. Now, um, there are two, and I would like to issue a disclaimer on one of them. Okay. Hmm. Tonally, it is medium problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is, um, you're going to get a very great background and it is told in storytelling fashion. It is Mary McLeod Bethune, a biography by Rackham Holt. This biography was from 1964 and there is some jovial paternalism in this book that might be jarring. Mm -hmm. So if you just think of it as a historical document and proceed, um, it's, it's a well- told story but there's often just a tone that is hmm. that's all i'm saying about that okay <laughs> um, you'll have to just learn for yourself it's like it's too cheerful about some things i see you know like but she picked up and moved on and then everywhere else you're like the ku klux klan surrounded the house and you know she sang and all the bad men went away like yeah <laughs> so you know oh my gosh um mary mcleod bethune as a disney princess <laughs> Because that's the image I just had. I just saw a video of Princess Leia as a Disney princess where all, because she is technically, yeah. where all the other princesses were like, I had to do chores every day. I was too pretty and it almost cost me my life. I loved forks a lot, but couldn't possess them properly or whatever. Uh-huh. What is your particular dismay? And she's like, well, I witnessed the destruction of a billion innocent people. Some of them were friends. A lot of them were family. And all the Disney princesses are like, huh, so the pie's really good today. <laughs> like, anyway, so it's kind of like that. This book is like that. Okay. Anyway, so for a um, different approach, Mary McLeod Bethune, Her Life and Legacy by Nancy Ann Zrinyi Long. Less paternalistic. Okay. And also less of a storytelling. So here is also something very, very, very valuable to me. Mary McLeod Bethune, Building a Better World, which is a collection of her papers edited by Audrey Thomas. And it covers a lot of speeches kind of a behind-the-scenes letter-writing campaign. There's more of her Washington, D.C. years than before, you know, and it goes vaguely chronologically and is also arranged by um, civil rights work, the struggle to set up the school, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. It's very good, and I got a lot out of that book, even though it wasn't technically a biography. If you're already familiar with her story, this is really good. This is almost like the director's cut and you can get the, um, what do you call that? The commentary. Oh, this is the commentary. I see. Yeah. There are several books out there that are kind of like that and that they're more of a narrow focus of her life. And I read several of them. Um, I can recommend Mary McLeod Bethune, Matriarch of Black America by Dr. Earl Devine Martin. It was a pretty quick read. All of these are not super, super thick, but they're focused in on that specific topic. I almost want to say that they're like a, a doctorate thesis or something enlarged into a mm. book, but I thought they were readable. So that's good. And that particular one, he is a pastor, so it colors his view a bit, but he's he doesn't beat you over the head with it. And it also influenced her life. So I thought that that was an interesting perspective. 
Mary McLeod Bethune in Washington, D.C., Activism in Logan Circle by Dr. Ida E. Jones. And obviously it focuses on her life in Washington after like 1936. And Mary McLeod Bethune in Florida, Bringing Social Justice to the Sunshine State by Ashley N. Robertson. Well, I'm holding the Washington, D.C. book in my hand. I'm particularly taken with uh, the picture in here of Mary McLeod Bethune at the People's Protest, the Don't Work Where You Can't Clerk uh-huh. Protest. Anyway, there's some pictures in here that are that are not in any of my other books. So I liked yeah. that one a lot. Um, as to children's books, there are a lot. I will recommend one. I'm assuming you have one. Mary McLeod Bethune, 1875 to 1955, Journey to Freedom. It is... Very, very small. Um, I would say probably a fourth or fifth grade book, maybe even a sixth grade book. It's not like a picture book. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot about um, a lot of sidebars about what happened during World War Two and then showed basically a um, Rosie the Riveter of color. And it highlights words that are a little like turmoil. Convictions for you to look up and there's a glossary in the back for some words that you might not have understood. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that one. It's yeah, I love that one. I also had another middle grade book, and this is from a series that I've grabbed before. African-American Biographies is the name of the series. This one is Mary McLeod Bethune, Educator and Activist by Andrea Broadwater. I really think these kind of books are excellent to get a general overview of someone's life. And I don't think it's there's no shame in us as grownups with larger vocabularies and knowing what turmoil means in reading them. I mean, you want a quick view of someone, read one of these middle grade or YA books. You know, it's got the information in it, gives you a good overview of their life, and then you can dive into something more specific. You know what? This is the way I learn. I'm interested to know if others learn this way. Like, so say I have read a children's book Mm -hmm. and I've learned about someone's life. Okay. And then years go by. And then you re-encounter this person and read more deeply or watch a movie about her. Uh-huh. And it almost seems like having something in your mind to hang that knowledge mm-hmm. on, i.e. having read the children's book, makes it a lot easier to retain things. You're not like constructing a new file cabinet. Right, right. Yeah, you don't have to world build at all. Yes. No, yeah. I totally get it because you know the world. Okay. Yep. No, I agree completely. A lot of times I'll watch a documentary because I'm more of a visual learner. And then I'm reading the books and I can actually see like images from that documentary in my head. Yeah. Speaking of visual learners, there is a documentary. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's funny. Good job. There is a documentary called Mary McLeod Bethune, The Spirit of a Champion. And I again say try Canopy with a K, K K-A-N-O-P-Y, which is affiliated with your local library system. And provides opportunity for viewing of many documentaries. And it just really varies by library system if that is available in your area. You might also check your local public um, television station's archives on their website. I can't be more specific because everything's so individualistic. Yeah, I didn't have any documentaries on Canopy for her. I was very disappointed. I I turned to Vimeo and I found uh, Bethune 21. It's kind of an excerpt from a longer one. But that one was made by the organization that funded the Statuary Hall statue, the Florida group that founded that. Got it. Yeah. So that's that's the only visual I had. I'm so sad. (laughs) Also, okay, so then I have other places to go. Speaking of public television, um, at NPR.org, there is a episode of Code Switch that talks about why did black voters flee the Republican Party? 
And it specifically talks about the 1960s, which of course is, you know, Truman era, Johnson era, Kennedy era. And that is all um, Zephyr Wright era. (laughs) If we're going to harken back to a previous subject. So that, um, anyway, so that'll tell you, it it goes back a little, but it mostly is into the 1960s, which of course is past Mary McLeod Bethune, but I did refer to it in the episode. So I wanted to give you a, a link to that. Also, I have visual digitized copies of her address to the new partners once Bethune-Cookman became Bethune-Cookman, you know, Mm -hmm. the merger of the two institutions. Her address has been printed and bound and then digitized. So I can give you a link to that. Uh, Bethune-Cookman University website has a lot of information on her, obviously. I don't know that we ever like gave like the rundown of how I just have a bullet point here, but she formed the school in 1904. The two schools merged in 1923. That was finalized two years later. It got accredited as a college in 1931 and changed its name to Bethune-Cookman College. Then in 2007, it got university status. So now they're Bethune-Cookman University. So if we said it throughout this in kind of different ways, so I just wanted to leave you with a little, you know, timeline of the school. And again, we'll link you up to their website because there's a lot in there. Um, also digitized has been both the White Conference in Memphis in um, 1920 and then the follow-up conference of the Southeastern Federation of Colored Women's Clubs response to that and the outline. So both of those are digitized in different places. So I'll provide you a link to that. Oh, and I also wanted to give you a link to something I just referred to idly in section one. There was a phenomenon called the Rosenwald schools and thousands of schools were built in the South for expressly for black children to attend by the combined effort of Booker T. Washington and a man who was a partner in the Sears Roebuck Corporation. So thousands and thousands of black students were able to go to school too late for young Mary Jane McLeod, you know, it was a little bit later than than she was able to go to school. But I just wanted to kind of give you an, an indication of what other efforts were going on toward that end at the time. So it's kind of an interesting history. There might be a remaining Rosenwald school near you if you're in the South. There's not an existing one within striking distance of Kansas City. So that's a bummer. I, <laughs> I guess we have to go I on guess, a field trip. Um, I guess so. Yeah. Bummer. All right. But okay. if you um if you are in the South, some of them have been preserved as museums. So uh, if you ever do go to one accidentally while looking for a geocache, I will almost guarantee you there's probably a geocache <laughs> at one. Let me know. That's like three layers of nerd that I really would appreciate. Speaking of museums, the National Women's History Museum has an entry on their website for her, presumably when they have the funding to have an actual brick and mortar museum. She will have a display there. I can't imagine her not. The first physical display of the National Women's History Museum, it's going to happen in April 2023 at the Martin Luther King Memorial Library in Washington, D.C. And the theme is We Who Believe in Freedom, Black Feminism in D.C. So I'm going on about this because I'm going to also link you up to the National Women's History Museum. And in this National Women's History Month, it is a great time to contribute. I contribute to them. Just get our history out so people can walk in and see it. Both of her old homes are now National Historic Sites. 
both the one in D.C. and the one in Daytona Beach, Florida at Bethune-Cookman University. That one is closed right now for renovations, but we'll link you up because they're not going to be closed forever. So you can visit both of those places. And of course, you can also visit National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. and see her beautiful statue that was given by the people of Florida to the country. And in closing, how about an excerpt from an address that Dr. Bethune gave near the end of her life? She is, of course, speaking to the audience in the room, but I think she's also speaking to us. I have been the dreamer, but now you are the interpreters. And as I stand on the sidelines, as I watch the great throng go by, I want to ask you to take that torch that was placed in our hands and carry that torch higher and higher until the spirit of brotherhood shall have enveloped the world and mankind everywhere will understand the change of heart and mind, the doing away with walls, the doing away with the things that are intended to keep us apart, and building more solidly the bridge that we can walk over all types of difficulties and bring into action that brotherhood, that fellowship that the world needs today. Thanks for listening. Bye! This would normally be where I say, if you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. But let's do a little variation. If we have set out a ripple that has touched your life and you have turned around and shared that with someone else, how about if you let us know? We would be so grateful. It would be the greatest reward. Either uh, email at chicks at thehistorychicks.com over on our Facebook page at the History Chicks or in our Facebook group at The History Chicks. You go to the Facebook page, you look for join group and answer the entry questions. That is a place of lively discussion and um, will probably be where everyone starts talking about this. We can't wait to hear from you and um, I'll keep it short. The song at the end is Keep On by Cat Webb. See you next time. Sweet little Southern girl such a long way from home She moved to the city to make her dreams come true She had a voice and a heart of gold Hoping she could hold her own Didn't know all the heartache the city put her through She thought it would be so crazy Like haunting me To make her dreams reality She was so optimistic to be realistic.